This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. Today's guest is Ryan Johnson, a fellow Hoosier and another friend of mine from my mysterious Midwestern Christian college. Ryan and I were both in the same social sciences department in college, so we talk about our shared experiences there, and from that starting point we weave a wonderful conversation about religion and politics, and politics and religion, and back and forth over and over again. (laughs) Ryan and I were thankfully able to meet up in Chicago and had a wonderful face-to-face conversation. As always, there are several ways to support the show. First, let's get through the social stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can also follow the show on Twitter at ExvangelicalPod. I also started an Instagram and have one photo up at ExvangelicalPod. You can also like the show on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ExvangelicalPod. Please also rate and review the show on iTunes. I'd greatly appreciate that. And you can share the show with your friends and even your enemies if you're aware of their religious and cultural and political baggage. Finally, you can support the show with a love offering on Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. Oh, and something I've been starting on Facebook and Twitter. Lately, I've been trying to have a show hashtag to see if I can uh, gen up some conversation about our episodes. And the episode, the hashtag for this episode is hashtag American Jesus. So, all right, let's get into it. Hello and welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me uh, this week Ryan Johnson, another friend of mine from my college days. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks, Blake. Really glad to be here. Thank you. So uh, let's get started. Um, how about uh, you tell us a little bit about about your background? Where where, where are you from? Uh, sure. So I grew up in sort of East Central Indiana. Um, grew up in a really small town, um, a, a settlement, I guess, because it's it's unincorporated, so a village or something. But um, went through high school in sort of the typical Midwestern fashion, um, and then ended up at an evangelical Christian university, um, also in Indiana. Um, and so that's sort of the, the rough outline, but I grew up in the Methodist church, um, as a kid, a very small kid. And then when I was, I don't know, about eight, I think we moved to a Wesleyan church and the difference was kind of night and day, even though theologically they're, they're kissing cousins or something like that. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, they, the, the church that I went to in my, in my small town was a community church to, you know, more than a sort of theologically driven or, or you know, they were adhered to each other because they were all from that small town. 
And so it was less about the theology, it was less about the praise and worship experience. It was really sort of social, I guess, where everybody from this town literally walked into the church on Sunday. Um, the pastor there was pastor at like two or three other churches because it was just an unsustainable congregation. Mm -hmm. um, and then moving to the Wesleyan Church, it was a big church. Um, I think when we joined them, they were uh, five or six hundred, and they ended up over over fifteen hundred. I think weekly oh, wow. attendance. I mean, a big church. Um, they got people driving in from all over. And the difference there, of course, is you know that small church. Everybody knows each other. They grew up together. It's really a family kind of environment. And the other one being less personable, less less intimate. Certainly, um, they try to compensate for that by you know small groups and a bunch of the other things that um, that you would identify with sort of large church experience. But uh, fundamentally, I think for me it was always a, I always had a bit of a longing for that small church, that small group. So. Uh, I was really active in that bigger church, though, because they had so many places for people to interface. Um, for example, I did, uh, like, the children's ministry. Of course, attended youth group um, every week. Um, helped organize a bunch of other things. My parents, my mom sings really quite well, and so she was on one of the praise and worship teams, and my dad did sound engineering for, for the same team that she was on. And so we were always kind of at the church, which was good. Um, and then, you know... After college, though, I really I, I knew even then I wasn't excited about that big church experience just because it it never felt like I knew everybody and maybe that's partly my fault. I, I'm pretty introverted and so meeting new people is a bit of a challenge. But um, yeah, just it never felt like the right place for me to play. So I, I sort of after after college floated around a little bit. Um, I traveled a lot internationally during that time too, and so. Um, you know, being at the same place every Sunday was a challenge. Mm -hmm. It was impossible. Um, and so I ended up spending a lot of time at Catholic churches just because no matter what language, the Mass always follows the same order and you kind of know where you're at, um, which is <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit familiar at, sure. at a certain point. Uh, and, you know, even in college, I, I spent a lot of time um, getting to know sort of li the liturgical side of, of the Christian tradition, which was which was interesting to me. It was a different way of connecting. Um, I think one of the things that I also didn't particularly like about the, the large church experience was the concept that praise and worship had become, I think even in smaller churches, it, it was probably this way in a lot of places. So I won't say it's a big church problem or, or issue, but that's where I first noticed it, uh, was that praise and worship was this sort of big thing with a rock band and music that you didn't need to have a hymnal for because it was all up on, on a screen but you don't need to you know there's no there's no you know written music it's all just the words and um the idea being that you know every couple weeks we do new songs and you're always getting to know something new which I, I think is probably entertaining but again for somebody like myself who sort of missed that connection to something a little bit more like what I had grown up with it wasn't it wasn't great for me um, yeah, and I think there's something to that. I think there is maybe an element where um, I'm definitely prone to introversion too. So, I mean, I, I think there's an element of if that sort of a raucous sort of <laughs> behavior, yeah. it, it 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 doesn't jive with everyone. It right. literally just doesn't. And yeah. so, I mean, I I think it's very interesting. I grew, also grew up in like a rural Indiana Methodist church growing yeah. up and it definitely for the one I went to I lived in the 
Crawfordsville, so another central Indiana sort of area. Um, and it was very, it wasn't like deeply liturgical, but there were hymns, there was call right. and response, there was moments with the children, yeah. there was a flow. And for someone that's introverted, <laughs> there that regiment, that schedule, it actually really helps you, you know, because right. it gives you a grounding. And then when it, when you move to something that's more the praise and worship model, and you don't know what the songs are going to be ahead of time. They're not published right. in the, right. <laughs> they're not published in the, uh, in the handouts. Right. It's, it's all just uh, very ephemeral and uh, it brings in a, a level of uncertainty that some people aren't comfortable with. Right. And, and to be frank, I, I find it to be a little bit manipulative. Um, we, I mean, psychologically that, that kind of music, these, big chords and the, sort of the building of, of emotion and all of that is designed to manipulate people's emotions, whether it's being done by Mozart or Verdi in an opera or Sunday morning at your local, you know, Willow Creek wannabe, right? And there's a problem for me with that because it, if that's the way that people are connecting with the Holy Spirit, and maybe there's some legitimacy there. I, I, I honestly don't know. But if that's the way people are connecting and we know we can kind of trigger that to some point, it makes it feel like it's not really an authentic experience because I know that if I put these three songs together, like 40% of the congregation are going to have their hands up and are going to be swaying and they're going to feel something. And I don't know what that something is, to be, to be honest with you. Uh, I'd like to think that it's the Holy Spirit because, I mean, so not, I, let, me, let me put this contextually, you know, sort of in bounds. I'm not questioning the existence or, or the validity of Holy Spirit or, or its ability to interact with us. Just within that one moment, I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is... And I, I, get I don't want to open that can of worms and finds <laughs> an agnostic. Um, yeah. That's not true. That, yeah, I think, uh, I, I think there's something to that. Um, I mean, I, my experience, I was in a youth group. Um, we moved from Indiana to the suburbs of Chicago when I was in high school. Um, the youth group I was a part of in uh, Illinois was much more evangelical just by culture. It was still a Methodist church, but evangelicalism has a, like it, it it's permeated <laughs> even into, in, even into mainline things. And, uh, so, uh, so we had a, a lot of the markers of that. And one of them was, the music, and I was on like the youth group worship team and all those sorts of things. And I rem- I remember, um, in in retrospect, that I was very emotional in high school. Which mm. I mean, it's very nat- natural, natural, natural to be very emotional. And and I got at those sorts of big emotional moments when I was part playing and when I was listening to those sorts sure. of, that sort of music. But then once I got to college. And I was going to mandated <laughs> chapel yeah. classes, chapel chapels, and everything three times a week, or more generally, skipping those chapels. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> uh, but I was uh, it, the the bottom dropped out emotionally. Not it stopped resonating. Yeah. And like that was troubling to me. I was like, "What's wrong with me?" Like, right. And it's and not <laughs> you. I mean, fundamentally, like, and maybe that's part of the problem is that. I think evangelicalism has this sort of like joiner mentality, right? Where, and part of that I think is because we want to be attractive and we want the church to grow, and you know, so we're constantly trying to find the way to be, to get more people to come and, and be part of this thing. 
but without making it necessarily inclusive, right? So, and this to me is a, one of the fundamental sort of paradoxes in, in the evangelical movement. We want more people in, we want more, you know, the church to grow, and we, we want to be you know, these mega churches, that's great. And even if that's not really the goal, you know, there's a certain level of conformity that's expected. Um, and so how do you go about doing that? And, and the easy way, and I think it's the way that a lot of churches unfortunately have taken, is to sort of mandate uh, sort of conformist attitudes and, and mandate like, okay, now you're in the door, here are the rules. And I don't know that that's really good for, for the body of Christ, right? Um, the global Christianity, right? The, yeah. The health, yeah. Of, the health of all Christians everywhere. Um, you know, one of the things that, that was always troubling to me about the way we, we go about that, you know, it, certainly you probably saw it in the youth group that you were part of, Lord knows I did, um, you get sort of even evangelism training, right? Like here's how you walk your friend through the Romans road, like in between classes in high school, because that's, that's what's going to happen. Um, it never happened to me. Usually, uh, if any of my friends started expressing an interest in their faith, we'd try to find like a more serious way of having a conversation, but it was always like these vignettes of like, well, I've got 15 minutes before science class starts. <laughs> Let me get saved right now. Um, yeah. But okay, I, the idea is take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of you. I, that's fine. Um, but it was always a little a, a weird thing to see up on the stage. But we go through this like Romans road where, you know, we, we bring people to this acceptance of Christ's death and resurrection for their sins in this personal way. But the minute they accept it, we impose even more rules than what they had before when they didn't even necessarily know they were you know, these sinful, horrible people that we've just told them they are, right? We've revealed their, their sinful nature to them and, and yeah. that shock somehow has, has gotten them to accept Christ. And I don't know if that's really a useful thing because once you bring somebody into the faith, any faith, right, or, or any organization, do you want to immediately slap up more rules to them and, and, try, and try to get them to be, to conform to your vision and, you know, this is how we do praising. I, I don't know. So this idea of, of conformity and, and some rigidity to me is a little bit problematic. Yeah. I don't know. You have I to mean, have rules somewhere, I guess. But it seemed to me like these were a little arbitrary and a, and certainly handed down pretty heavy, with a heavy hand. So I don't know. So those, those are the sorts of things that I think... I wouldn't say that I had like a, a moment where I realized I, I wasn't really evangelical anymore and I'm not even sure that I probably would have ever recognized myself as being evangelical so maybe that's part of the problem like having grown up in that sort of tradition that's the only real Christianity right Catholics are suspect Presbyterians are suspect Baptists okay we get along with them um, despite the fact that the theology underpinning both of you know the Wesleyan and the Baptist denomination is fairly different um, you know predetermination and, and, and free will being kind of fundamental mm -hmm. concepts um, but we have more in common with them than we do with, with you know, some of the other denominations that, that see eye to eye with us on theological issues. So I don't know if I ever really considered myself that, but I, looking back on it now, I was part of that evangelical culture, um, the phenomenon of the 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s, sort of where you had this upswell in people positively identifying themselves as Christian, but in kind of an aggressive way. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean much as I like, loved DC Talk back in the day, Jesus <laughs> Freak, there's some validity to, to like standing up and saying, yes, I believe in these things, and I'm not afraid of that. But how close 
is that to going over the line of just ramming it down people's throats? And I saw a lot of people who rammed it down people's throats, right? And that's, it's not productive. Just fundamentally, no matter what your message is, you know, there, there are better ways to get it out there than forcing people to, to believe it or making them feel bad for not sharing your, your vision. Um, and so that culture was, you know, in the Midwest anyways, I don't know how it was in the rest of the country. I, I can imagine, you know, the Midwest and the South being probably the vanguard of that. Uh, yeah, and I think there were packet, pockets in, like, maybe Southern California. Sure, yeah. Uh, of, you know, San Diego area seems just <laughs> using <laughs> using our using our, our college campus as a demographic sample. Right. <laughs> it seemed like there yeah, was... San Diego is the Midwest with beaches. So, that's, <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's, it's military people. It's, it's, it swings pretty far to the right, which is fine. <laughs> They're smarter than we are because they got beaches. So yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> you know. we, got, we got cornfields. Yeah. We're um, <laughs> thinking it all over again. I should have done San Diego. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, so I think the Midwest was kind of at the, the forefront of that, certainly more than in other, like, big urban centers. I can't imagine, like, Boston or New York being... I'm sure, I'm sure there were kids like that out there, but I think it was the dominant cultural force where we grew up. Yeah, and you know, you were some shade of that, or you were like a heathen, like the, you know what I mean? Like, oh, absolutely. Joe goes to you know, like Second Baptist, and I go to, you know, Middleborough Wesleyan or whatever, but we're all like kind of the same thing. And then there's Amanda who doesn't go to church. I mean, there's no middle ground there, and I don't know. I, I think that because it was dominant for a, a fairly short period of time, right? I mean, I think Christianity in general has been the dominant re- religious force in American history. I don't think there's a lot of a lot of evidence to the contrary of it being sort of dominant. Uh, that evangelical Christianity, though, wasn't traditionally, right? I mean, if you go to you know, 1850s or something, you're not going to find a lot of what we would consider sort of evangelical. Christianity was part of their culture, mm-hmm. but in a different way. Oh, um, definitely. And so as that started to fade inevitably, inevitably, because it was this kind of explosive movement and that doesn't tend to be sustainable, um, now you see people feeling really like persecuted about that sort of, about the bubble collapsing on, right? Um, but I think maybe it, it, it creates an opening for a more thoughtful Christian culture. Um, one that, I mean, I, I won't, I won't dictate what it needs to look like, but one that certainly can be more inclusive and can be probably a little more authentic in, in some of these things where, where evangelicalism sort of forces conformity. And if you if you didn't feel the Holy Spirit, you still might raise your hands because you, you want everybody else around you to feel like you feel the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Maybe that doesn't matter as much anymore if we can, if we can shake off some of those things. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, that... What you're describing definitely resonates with my with my history. I, th- I think there was uh, an element of um, within the Midwest and small town Midwest, suburban Midwest. You have and just you're you're unaware that you're in this cultural milieu. Basically, yeah. you have uh, you're like a fish is un- doesn't know it's in water. Exactly. And so it was interesting when I and to your point about like Catholicism being suspect, I didn't really realized that until I moved from Indiana to Illinois because in my small town there were only a handful of Catholics yeah. and 
Uh, and then when I moved here uh, to the suburbs, there were Catholic Catholic churches on it. So as many Catholic churches as there are Protestant yeah. churches because there's such a historical presence here. Right. And I think that there's something to a historical perspective that the especially on the east coast those are older cities those are older cultures yeah and then i mean chicago itself only has it was incorporated in the 1800s mm-hmm. whereas new new york didn't was once new amsterdam right you know? it's yeah. been around forever and it has yeah. a, a cultural pull and a cultural um, magnetism that that it basically may be resistant to some of these newer ideas because to your yeah. to your point evangelicalism is very new yeah. um in the historical scheme of things and especially in the suburbs because i mean a lot of those were built you know literally yesterday right oh you yeah you go you know take indianapolis for example you, you know you drive a little bit north and you're in like fishers and carmel and noblesville and all these things there might have been a settlement there by that same name 150 years ago but it's not in any way connected to the town that exists there now. Like, those are all people who moved to Indianapolis and then moved out into the suburbs as they, you know, went through those demographic shifts that causes people to move out. They got married, they had kids, they, they got good-paying, stable jobs, and all of a sudden it's like, well, I'd like to have a three-bedroom ranch, right? Or, or whatever the, sort of the new McMansion is as, as, those, as those suburbs grow. And so, yeah, without that history and without that, maybe there's something that makes a place... And, and sort of a local community less resistant to, to dramatic shifts. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, going back to the Catholic, I mean, we, we had one, in, our, in, my, in my town growing up, we had one Catholic family. And literally, everybody says, well, yeah, they're, they're nice people, but they're Catholics. <laughs> yeah. And to me, I mean, it, it was a long time until I kind of got past that. Oddly enough, I mean, it took me spending a lot of time in Latin America where most people you meet are Catholics and you're like, well, you know, they're not horrible. Like, they're not out there. Like, <laughs> yeah. They don't seem to be, you know, like, killing people and eating them or anything. I mean, they're not cannibals. They're not monsters. They're oh, yeah. normal people doing, you know, like, trying their best to get ahead in life. Um, they've got this thing for Mary, but honestly, whatever. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, oh. there would... And again, yeah, in my town, there was, like, one known Catholic family. Yeah. And, the, and, like, the... The father of that family, he volunteered at the high school and like led, um, you know, the the anti-drug pro-abstinence group that was like that was so huge in our uh, in our in our town as like a social club uh, for the high school kids, you yeah. know. So like clearly, <laughs> like the fruits are there, <laughs> but oh, uh, Catholicism, right. I don't know about that. It was, yeah. it was such a it was such an odd. Looking back, it was such an odd thing. And so. One thing that I think runs parallel to that, at least where I grew up, is it was also very homogenous in terms of ethnicity and even background. So everybody was, almost everybody was white. There were a couple of African-American families. Um, there was like the one Asian guy who worked for, he was a Japanese businessman who was running a Japanese-owned plant in a neighboring city. Like, so, you know, you've got the one Japanese, but, you know, then eventually, you know, there were there were plenty of people that came from Latin America, but... Uh, even today, it's still a fairly homogenous place where most of the people have sort of maybe Scotch-Irish last names, maybe German, certainly no Italians, right? I mean, like, <laughs> which is just bizarre because, you know, now I live in Washington, D.C., which is a, a really cosmopolitan place. You, you live here in Chicago, incredibly diverse place. 
and none of that, I don't know, it, it, none of it phases me anymore. Like, I don't notice really like people are, are very different. Like, if somebody's walking down the street in like a full mariachi costume, I'm going to notice that. I'm not blind. <laughs> but, you know, like, so it, 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 growing up in a place where there wasn't that much diversity, it was always actually very attractive to me. Very interesting to see how other people would live and, and um, what their life was about, right? I was always really curious about that. Um, and so that's part of the reason I did as much traveling as I could, is just kind of see some of that and, and really have something to compare my little town to, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's... Growing up in that kind of place, you, you, you don't notice when everybody is like you, you don't have anything to compare it to. So I guess we didn't realize how important that evangelical culture had become, how, how pervasive it was. Um, and we couldn't really criticize it because we didn't know anything better. Right? Mm. And it wasn't until we got to university that, that we had at least a little more to compare to, and, and probably even after that, to be, to be really honest, because I mean, our, our university was kind of an extension of our youth groups. I mean, I think, well, I know a ton of people from my high school and my, my youth group in particular ended up at our university. So what what brought you there? I always think I pretty much asked everyone this question, yeah. and the reason is because it's actually, <laughs> it's I mean, it's a, it, it's different for everyone. Yeah. There's a for some people there's a familial thing, and sure. it's just a, like a generational. Everyone has gone here. Um, for some people, it's a particular call to ministry. That was what initially led me there. Um, for other for other people, it's just parent mandated you have to go here (laughs) so i i think that's always like what what made you choose christian school over any other school really yeah um so basically when i was when i was like eight years old um i felt maybe that i was called to ministry and so that was something i put a lot of energy into um all through high school so the wesleyan church has this really actually really useful program um, the name of which for, I've forgotten. It's something sort of playing on ROTC, which is like the, what the military sort of high school and, and university training for future officers is. It plays on that. Um, but the um, the great thing is I had two really good pastors at the church that I went to. I mean, I don't want to disparage all of that church because I don't think nobody there's bad, right? It's just because it was just this kind of cultural phenomenon it sort of fed off itself and, and some excesses developed but um, there are two pastors in particular that were, were really good critical thinkers I'll, I'll note that they neither neither was the lead pastor um, and I think that that's not atypical right so the lead pastor in a lot of churches is more of a people person but you always end up with like that one associate pastor who's like the guy with a really deep library yeah right and I mean not I've, seen, I've seen a <laughs> a lot of churches that way. And so I ended up with those guys, which was perfect for me. Um, not necessarily type A. <laughs> right. Like, or at least not, you know, not It takes alpha. all of them. To, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a team yeah. effort. And, and so finding the right balance, I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. But um, I was lucky to get two subsequent associate pastors at the church to, to mentor me um, through high school, which probably kept me out of trouble more than a little bit. But... Uh, <laughs> Because, you know, if you know that every Tuesday you've got to sit down with the pastor and talk about what's going on in your life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But also, like, they they were both pretty significant intellectuals. I mean, they were were really bright guys, really well-read, and pretty well-rounded. And they 
they got me thinking critically about faith. Um, and one of them got me started reading and, and understanding church history, where I realized pretty early on that it wasn't until recently that people started believing things the way that we see Christianity today in our little community. So that was a, an early trigger for me, an early cue that this would be maybe a yeah, there, there, there was a world out there a little broader than what I was seeing. And the other one had me even go a little bit deeper and start picking up like Thomas Aquinas and some of these things where um, one of the tenets obviously of the evangelical movement is this sort of borderline fundamentalism, right? I mean, I, I don't think most of us grew up in a, in a really strict fundamentalist, you know, but we all had friends that were, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And we all, we all knew those guys and we kind of sympathized with them a little bit. We just thought they maybe they were having a slightly too simple understanding of the of the Bible, <laughs> but maybe ours was also a little bit simplistic as well. So, you know, understanding that faith and reason and science could all coexist. Sometimes there was tension, but we had to work at that tension. Um, that was something that also was really attractive to me. But it was only in this one small sort of niche program that I got that. You never heard that on Sundays, right? You never heard that in you know your average Christian. Christian living book, right? Um, and I've read most of them, you know, during that time. I worked at the the local Christian bookstore as well. Hey, is, me yeah, too. Yeah, it's a great. It, it is <laughs> it is the best after school job a teenager can have because it, you know, it's not a restaurant. It's not like a gas station. <laughs> the people come in are pretty nice, right? Like you have to worry about people stealing. People stole from us all the time. It was really weird. Um, and you got some like kooky merchandise, but <laughs> yeah. uh, but other than that, like. You know, a lot of evenings you could just sit there and read till it was time to close up shop at 8 o'clock. I loved it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, you never... There weren't a lot of books out there challenging, especially not the bestsellers, right? Like the Max Lucados or whatever. Um, they, they didn't challenge these notions of of the evangelical culture. They, they sort of accepted those as where to begin, and everything was built on that. Um, so these two pastors helped a lot in terms of some, some groundwork. So... That's kind of how I, how I ended up at our university. Um, I took a year before I came to, to our university, I took a year at a, another school, not a Christian school, um, in Ohio. Well, my, Miami University. I don't think there's a problem mm-hmm. saying that. Um, and if you want to name drop, honestly, it's yeah, it's more can, of a it's more of a right. gag at this point. Yeah, because we're all on LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> I know that's uh, it's well, really um, easy to connect it. <laughs> yeah, uh, what do these eight people have in common? Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, so I went to Miami University of Ohio for a year um, to do. some I, I had this thing where I was like, I'm not really sure about the ministry thing. Uh, and at the same time, I really think it would be interesting to do the military thing. So I was going to do the military ROTC. Um, the idea being to go into the Navy and, and be a pilot. Uh, and I did a year of that. And I just, I didn't settle in at that school terribly well. I mean, just academically, it was okay. I had a couple classes that weren't great, but I mean, I was fine. But sort of the day-to-day, like, student life there just wasn't right for me. Um, I started drinking probably, well, a lot. Um, You know, I was 18 the first time. There's another thing with evangelical culture, quite frankly, Um, and we saw it a lot at our university. Guys come in and they've been sheltered. They've had this youth group life where, like, you know, three days a week they're in church and they, you know, everybody around them is also from that same church or or they all know each other. 
they hold each other more or less accountable, which isn't necessarily bad, but they don't have anything built in that when the blinders are taken off and they've got like actual liberty for the first time in their life, they don't just go crazy. And I went crazy for, for a few months. Um, luckily, some things transpired in my life and I, I got sort of that figured out, which is, which is good. Um, and so kind of in the process of that, straightening myself out, I was like, okay, I need, to, I need to find a better place. And I never really addressed that sense of being called and, and got resolution on it. I just sort of ignored it for a year. Um, so that's how I ended up. I started my sophomore year at our, at our university. And um, yeah, so I mean, basically it was to pursue Christian ministry. I ended up not being a Christian ministry major. Um, I started out as, as one or whatever. There's a pre, before you get into Christian ministry, there was like a pre ministry yeah. where, like, where you do a year of that and then they vote you up or down. And uh, I forget what that was called, but that's where I started. Uh, and then I added religion and philosophy. And then uh, I had a sit-down with the head of the political science department. And I realized that that was probably a better fit for me. Um, and so I, I switched over to that. Uh, the guy in particular, not a great fit, because uh, he was incredibly dogmatic um, and had some, some fundamentally like dangerous views. But you know, the, the, the course of study, though, was attractive to me. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's where we had a, several classes in common. Yeah. Uh, was in that political science department. I was, uh, were you, did you settle into political science directly? Because I was the more general history major. Okay. So yeah, um, I was, I was poli sci um, all the way. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, let's see. Which is probably. Which at our university is basically the same as pre law. Yeah. Uh, because the, this, this particular guy, the head of the department, had a clear vision that international affairs didn't exist, macroeconomics didn't exist, um, and so there would be no reason to study how states interact with each other. Yeah, and that was that was and it was insane to me. Um, and I remember I, I still have a very good understanding to the up to the Civil War <laughs> of uh, of American history, and um, and then and I was thankful for uh, the course on. Western intellectual and social history, um, because it actually had some of the more interesting assigned texts. Even though the professor kind of missed the point of a couple of those texts, yeah. um, I'm thinking most, uh, in particular, of Kuhn's um, uh, structure of scientific revolutions, which was an assigned course in a class that taught a very specific and domineering worldview. Um, and that was the entire point of the course. <laughs> but that book actually talks about um, anomalies in bodies of knowledge that then <laughs> lead to paradigm shifts, which actually equipped me to, in a, in a roundabout way, to reject the worldview that he was teaching. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and then I do remember, finally, uh, my junior, junior or senior year, they added a, a staff member that actually taught an American foreign relations course. You know, what? and I loved that class. I knew that guy. He was uh, he was a graduate assistant when I was at Miami, and I, I had him then. And then he walks in. I mean, it, for me, it, it probably saved me from going insane. Um, <laughs> I really did because I knew that international relations was really what I cared about. And so when I was like five years old, my grandparents gave me this historical atlas, which shows you how like over a given place on the earth, 
what empires have washed through there over the. You know. mm. So if you look at a place like um, I don't know Sicily, where like first it was you know guys coming out of out of the Middle East came over there, you know, like from Israel and Jordan came to, to colonize there, and then like the Etruscans come down and it's Roman for a while, and the Libyans take it over, blah blah blah. The French get it, and it's just this one place, but all these cultures are built on top, and that was always fascinating to me. Um, and I just always wanted to go and be around those sorts of things and, and see how that happens in the real world. Um, and so, yeah, that was the biggest challenge for me at our university was that there was this, you know, stated, you know, paradigm that there, there is no such thing as international relations, so why would we study it, right? Uh, and so this guy showed up, yeah, and it was really great. Um, he was a pretty good professor, actually, and... Um, he helped me a ton because I ended up doing a lot of independent studies with him um, mm. as he built the foreign relations major, international studies major, or whatever that they ended up creating. So that's great. Yeah, yeah I, I cool. didn't even know that he um, that he he pursued it that far. I did have a couple coffees with him, and it was some of the more encouraging moments I had yeah. with with faculty, especially within that department. Um, I've already talked in a prior episode about this particular professor who was the chair at the time even went so far as to turn people away uh, that would disagree with disagree with uh, him. And um, it was always a, a, that course of study coupled with studying Greek and everything is what really led for me to a lot of, you know, sort of uh, struggles with, my, with understanding and reconstructing my faith and everything mm. within my college years. Uh, but, I mean, a lot of it was that very dog, dogmatic perspective. Yes. Yeah. And... Um, and he tried to describe it as the biblical Christian worldview, right? Which is such problematic language. What, what your what your listeners can't actually see is that you actually started to do the hand motions that he would always do with those, <laughs> showing so... us how Pavlovian that is. Because um, this guy had had some. I don't want to pick on him. He's he's deceased, and I wouldn't. It wouldn't be right in, in any sense. But he he was very stuck in his ways. I mean, he was just he was a very rigid person who figured out how to, his form, and you could actually, um, the last class, the last, you know, class session of every course that he taught was always exactly the same, no matter which course it was, right, where he would stand up and he would thank his assistant, thank his wife, thank us, blah, 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 but I mean, it was literally verbatim, always the same, um, and he had tapes of his courses, so when he was sick, he could play the tapes, but the tapes were 20 years old, and nothing about his course had changed, um, which, when, when I, realize that I'm like okay I'm dealing with somebody who's not fundamentally connected to reality because the world is changing right I mean we we were freshmen on 9-11 right Mm -hmm. um and there were a lot of turbulent shifts in the world during the four years that we studied I mean four years of undergrad and you know two wars an incredible shift in just the way we understood the world so to not adjust for that to me was ridiculous. Um, the biggest fight I had with him, uh, luckily he didn't kick me out of the major, um, but it, we had this this thing where he, we had, there was a class on like media and and society something like that, and the key text was um, the, the, uh, Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, understanding media. Yeah. yeah, great book, but kind of like the other one you mentioned, he doesn't really get the point that uh, he's off, he's also framing everything he wants us to see and, and controlling, you know, how it's presented. Much like he's criticizing, you know, NBC, NBC Nightly News for doing <laughs> Um But he gets up and he starts talking about how on September 11th, the 
the media was like constructing the narrative. And I'm like, I'm not sure that anybody's constructing that. We were all watching it live. Like I remember vividly that day. Um, and yeah, it, there was nothing to construct there. It was, I mean, it was just this horrible thing happening. Now, afterwards, maybe you could argue, you can't see it. live TV. You, you don't get to control the events or the angle of the camera. It's, it's happening. Yeah. So there was this guy's sort of disconnect from reality that was problematic. So what about the rest of your time at, at school and kind of leading leading into that? Um, did you, it, in regards to your connection to evangelicalism, your evangelical identity, how is that, how is that uh, sort of changing over sure. time? Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely by the time I left, left the university, I, I felt probably disconnected from the evangelical culture pretty pretty significantly. Because it had just, like I think I had finally gotten enough of a sense of what else was around that I could contrast this to something and say, okay, here are at least, you know, X number of flaws that I see that, because I, I'm not, you know, I'm just one guy, I can't really address these on behalf of the whole culture, I need to go someplace else. Um, and so I ended up floating around, like I said, for, for a good while. Um, when I, I, I lived in, in Chile for the last few years um, before moving back to the, to the U.S. this year. And uh, my wife and I found a Methodist church there, but it's sort of an old school Methodist church. And it reminded me a lot of the church I grew up in as a, as a small kid. And so uh, for me, that was really great. Um, they sung like actual, you know, Methodist hymns by the Wesley brothers and translated into Spanish. But at least like I know this melody, I can sing this song and I know what's going on. Uh, everybody there was related to each other somehow. I mean, it was a really small country church in the middle of a city. Uh, and then when we moved to um, to Washington, D.C., uh, I asked a couple of my friends who, who lived there uh, previously, you know, sort of where we could go that would be sort of a good fit. So we found a Methodist church in D.C. Um, that's actually, you know, very much not evangelical, I think, in terms of its structure. It's in terms of sort of the worship experience it, or, or, or the Sunday morning experience, it is a pretty liturgical Methodist church. Uh, but at the same time, it's incredibly inclusive and just the, the dominant message there is love and inclusion. Um, and that's been really great. So we have, you know, it's, it's a church that's focused and it, its energies are focused on uh, the LG. BTQ community, um, which is really interesting. Um, partly because in DC, that's it's it's a pretty prominent social issue, obviously. Um, but that this church has chosen to be at the forefront of that is is exciting, quite frankly. Um, and it creates just so many opportunities to to minister to people in a way that never touches on messages of hate or. You know, like like I mentioned earlier, hey, great, you accepted Christ. Now here are the things you need to change. That doesn't come into the communication at all. It's just Christ's love is there. Take it. You know, live with grace and then be gracious. And I mean, it's it's beautiful. I, we, my wife and I, both really love being part of that um, part of that community and, and and receiving that message too. I mean, I think that it it was important for us to kind of hear and, and reaffirm mm-hmm. um, as well. Yeah, and I'd I'd like to kind of zero in on a phrase you mentioned, which is actually love and inclusion, which I think is, for some people um, that may consider themselves evangelical, that's almost like a 
like a trigger word. Inclusion. Well, no, just like love and inclusion being, um, being like the thing. If, if you use that language, it's a demarcation. Sure. Like yeah, like you true. have a you have a um, on one side on on one side because I do think that there is part of um, sort of creating different different groups, which is a big part of uh, a big part of under being either both within and inside and outside of evangelicalism there's like a either or sort of binary yeah um so love and inclusion being the thing why uh, i just want to get your thoughts as to why you why you, why that language is so very different than what you see within within the evan in the inside of the evangelical yeah. sphere because that's to me something that I find almost end- endlessly fascinating. You have, uh, because so so much of being evangelical is about knowing your definition, yeah. but then love and inclusion is about your definition doesn't necessarily matter. The thing that defines us is the love of God, right. and then that's our starting point instead of this other thing. So, a couple of years ago, I probably would have said. Don't worry. I mean, like, evangelicals love anybody who's at least like them, right? And I think that in some instances that's still true. But you're right. I mean, certainly that's a trigger word for, you know, my dad would probably describe anybody who uses that as sort of like a hippie, right? I mean, (laughs) yeah, yeah. uh, It comes across as a little bit lefty, and, you know, next thing you know, you're going to be, you know, making people watch that movie about. What's the Salvadorian priest Romero? <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, whatever. Uh, but I think even now, and it, partly because evangelicalism is a little bit on the wane, I won't say that it's under attack, but they think it's under attack, right? Um, that that love is hardened even more, um, and there's more suspicion and more. The, the church would well, so the. The Wesleyan church that I, I attended as a kid um, was endlessly gossipy, right? Uh, and it was always like, you know, pointing out the, the sins that somebody else had. Especially, so there's like, for most evangelicals, you have like ordinary sin, like I got drunk. And then you have lifestyle sin, I'm an alcoholic. And they really like to point out those because those apparently are you know, the evangelical equivalent of mortal sins, right? They, they separate you from God's love somehow, and until you really fix it, you, you're you just not going to go to heaven. I mean, that's at least the way it was presented in the church I grew up in. Maybe I won't speak for, for the 30 million people or whatever that, that would represent themselves as evangelical. Um, and so, you know, if so-and-so is having an affair and getting a divorce, then, you know, they're out but you know we'll still smile at them and say hi to them on Sunday mornings when we see them and maybe even go out for dinner with them on Friday but we're going to talk about them and that to me was it's it's kind of sick right because it doesn't address the problem right you're not helping that person get past something that you think is obviously wrong with them Um, and so I'm not sure how much love is in that to be frank Um, I think they want to love I mean I don't think that they they see a problem with love in and of itself. I just don't think that they have the right orientation to 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 use love to enable things, right? Love is a restrictive thing, almost. It's something that I'll give you if you behave. 
but it's a legalistic interpretation of Christianity. And I think evangelicals are pretty legalistic. Um, it's all about rules. It's all about, you know, how many times as a kid did you accept Christ? I don't know. I mean, for me, it was a ton because I always felt like any little, any little time I screwed up, it was starting over at zero. But you can't live that way, right? Like, I mean, and I don't think the Bible instructs anything that way, but we've interpreted it somehow like that. Um, there's no grace in that. There's, it's all about, you know, like I've got to start over. Grace will get me back in the door, but then I've got to figure out how I stay there. And that doesn't seem to be, there's, there's no real love in that, right? I mean, it's love enough to give me a second chance knowing that I'll fail rather than enough love to, to get me through something or to transform me. Yeah. Um, so the question of, you know, love and inclusion, I don't, evangelicals don't want to be inclusive. And I think especially more so now because they do feel under attack. And it's just human nature, right? Um, we're tribalistic and, you know, like some deep subconscious level, we all are. And we have to overcome that. I mean, I think, you know, a great history of, of humanity is written in the moments where we've we've exceeded ourselves. And, and that's one area where... As a, as a race, right? I mean, all, all seven billion of us, we, we've got to continue to exceed ourselves. But, uh, you know, for evangelicals, it really is a question of us versus them. And, and you see it in the way things get framed all the time. Um, and if, you, if we look at evangelicals as a political entity, probably a circumstance of, of being a cultural entity first, but later a, a political entity, uh, everything gets framed as us versus them. I mean, literally everything meaningless things become an us versus them argument and we use persecution language to 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 rile the troops right and that's something you've seen more more in the last few years i would say i'd say 2008 and beyond um the election of obama was i think a watershed moment for the the evangelical sense that they were more or less on top of the american sort of political sphere that they were the dominant force and they had been for, what, 30, almost 40 years? Um, you know, Jerry Falwell to James Dobson to, I don't know, who who will go down as the last evangelical leader, but um, maybe Dobson himself. He's still a power player. I mean, but these are people who, who are increasingly betraying even the ideals that they would have had 20 years ago, for in the political realm anyways, um, to, to keep this thing kind of together, this voting block, together because I think once so okay so the evangelical voting block the evangelical polity is formed mostly around Roe versus Wade right I mean I think that's sort mm -hmm. of the moment where it, it hits a flashpoint and becomes expansive you always had conservative Christians that had pretty conservative views of, in the political realm um, whether that was you know using Christianity and, and, and biblical teachings as a, as a way of allowing people to own people, right, slavery, or to displace natives, or to avoid uh, interracial marriage, whatever, um, you'd always had that, but Roe versus Wade, you had this thing where, like, you know, you can really make this group big and cohesive, as long as you keep it about this one thing, and they're losing that battle, I mean, I think it's lost forever, quite frankly, um, Yeah, I'd... I don't want to, I don't I'm... give up hope, I don't think abortion <laughs> is a great thing. There are probably times when it, it may be better, but whatever. If that's the reason you're going to the polls every two years to vote for congressman or every four years to vote for president, 
that's kind of a, a not bright way of doing it because you're going to lose, right? Like for two big reasons. One, force of history. Like it's, it's so hard to overturn something like that just in general. Uh, but B, if the Republican Party doesn't, if they were to give you that, the evangelicals don't really need the Republican Party and they'd fragment again, right? Because I mean, not every evangelical feels as strongly about you know, gay marriage as they do abortion. I mean, I think abortion is a, it's a, truly a life or death issue for them, right? I mean, especially the way they've framed when life starts and all of that, it creates this thing where, yes, this must be murder and we have to stop murder. Okay. I mean, that's a compelling reason to go and vote. Um, but I would, you know, the thing I would ask is if you're going to keep voting on that, when do you expect results? Yeah. Right? And that's to me, to me, that's the, that's where I, I see it as a settled issue, actually. It's actually a false battle. Yeah. It's actually just a way, like you said, the, your language was perfect. They rile up their base every two to four years to maintain their own political power. And they have no intention of, of forcing that battle. It's been settled since the 70s. And there has never been any legitimate, any actual legitimate um, attack on it outside of, unfortunately, at the state level. I think. Um, yeah. I think. But uh, like, a, I mean, good luck. I mean, sorry, yeah. I, I don't want <laughs> yeah. to be callous about it. But it's kind. Of, you're right. It's done. So what's the next battle, right? What do you? But there's no thought about that. You don't see people really pushing for that. And at the same time, the number of evangelicals is dwindling. So the Republicans had tied themselves so tightly to the evangelicals, and they're facing this huge demographic challenge too. Um, with fewer evangelicals in a more diverse America, do you keep playing to the base, or do you find new ways? But you're gonna have to, eventually you're gonna have to sacrifice the evangelicals. So, like, what happens to the evangelical vote then? It'll still be significant. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, it could be enough to sway an election, and if it fragments totally, then who knows what happens, right? Like. It could really create some turbulence, uh, and that, but it, that's going to inevitably happen, I think. Um, yeah, and um, I mean, it's just such a interesting and fraught marriage between the two because you <laughs> you you do have each group pulling on each other, and the identity is so mixed up. And um, because are, if you're, do you have a default republicanism, and if you're a default republican, are you default? Evangelical. Well, and, I, think, I mean, Ed, I mean, if you look at what's happening this year, 2016 is weird. It's hopefully historians are, are writing down every detail of what's happening <laughs> in this election cycle because, I mean, I, I hope in 500 years we're, we're laughing about this because it's just a weird year. But Trump, in order to seal up the nomination, had to go to James Dobson. I mean, that's, that's still the, uh, the route he had to do. He had to get the evangelicals on his side, right? He was doing well with just sort of like, and there's a lot of overlap between the disenfranchised white middle-class male and, and the evangelical, right? And Trump's initial base was, was that first group, right? People who felt kind of left behind by the economic trends of the last 20 or 30 years in the U.S., the wages have stagnated, they're in Rust Belt cities, and, and their opportunities are, are limited. We're not doing enough for those people. So, you know, it's inevitable that they rise up and, and want to be heard. But before Trump could really seal the deal, he had to go to Dobson. So, I mean, the evangelical vote is still, I think, the, the way forward for the Republicans if 
if even Donald Trump has to go there and, quite frankly, let's be honest, pretend for a couple of <laughs> couple of weeks <laughs> yeah. to be, I mean, yeah, this is a guy who who just a few weeks before he met with Dobson, who whatever James Dobson apparently sleeps well enough at night for his own taste, but um, you know Dobson Dobson said no, he, I feel like he's a born again Christian. Um, but Trump a few weeks before that said he had never had anything that he needed to be, you know, had to ask forgiveness of. So it's just like, you know, maybe, maybe he, he had this conversion in the middle of running a campaign, but that to me is suspect. It seems like an opportunistic thing and I'd have a lot of serious questions about it. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I look at the evangelical voters and primarily Republicans and let's, you know, there's a lot of vitriol in the system right now between the two parties it's not healthy, um, but you know they they can't accept the idea that Hillary Clinton could possibly have faith. But there's tons of evidence of it. Um, she's a lifelong Methodist. Plenty of people have said she carries a well-worn Bible in her purse all the time. She turns to Scripture for inspiration. Uh, she rarely prays, and nobody talks about that. And she doesn't play it up either because it would probably alienate her from some of the Democrat Democratic base, right? So that's not. I mean, that's, that's unfortunate, too, that it's happening on the other side as well, that you have to use religion to get ahead in politics. A different way of using religion, but it still is. That Hillary would have to hide her somehow is sad. That Donald Trump would have to pretend to be an evangelical all of a sudden is also sad. <laughs> yeah. And that people would believe him sadder still. Right? I mean, that to me was, was incredible. The whole year has been incredible that he's gotten away with so much. I don't want to make this a podcast about Trump. There, there are probably 40 of those a day. But, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's a crazy year. Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, it's, <laughs> and you have to talk about it. It's you, absolutely... You do, it's, um, I don't know. I, I still, to this day, because of the effect of this marriage, this like significant overlap, like if there was a Venn, Venn diagram of evangelicalism and... Republicanism, they pretty much almost completely overlap yeah. in a lot of ways, and it makes you, um, it, it makes it very difficult a lot of times to separate political thought from religious thought, and yeah. even in the way, even in the way I frame things in my own mind, I still kind of see, uh, with the, even within a theological context, if I learn something about an author or, or a writer or whatever, there's still the left centrist right sort of like. Uh, uh, demarcation in my mind is this person uh, universalist oh then they must be leftist in right. their theology which like it doesn't I don't think that is necessarily a thing and also um, within my graduate work and everything I, I've, I've been absolutely um, I've absolutely loved learning about like the evangelical left and the 80s the a Catholic consistent life ethic right. and all these different options, yeah. and yet it's what, it's again the either or thing that, right. that happens. But it 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 comes back to that. I don't know. So maybe I I think that the average church is a little bit intellectually lazy. Maybe that's it. But I mean, the fact that you know you'd probably heard about some of those things before getting to grad school, but. Who had presented those to you in a fair and like interested way to get you to think about them, right? Certainly in our university, you know, critical thought was not always well received. Certainly wasn't always called for. Um, 
in the political science or social sciences department in general, no, it's, it's best that we just sort of do some. some I mean, there were there were opportunities, but and it and, was about knowing the right pieces and putting them together the way they wanted, and, and you'd learn kind of on the sides of that. And you'd also, I mean, that was very predominant. There was a very active college Republicans group that was available, that was made available and very present in all of those political science groups. And there was no College of Democrats. There was no other representation. I know that that I was an original member of the College of Democrats, and yeah. I felt like a revolutionary. Oh, and it was like it. just the most I mean, modest. Not you, but <laughs> the fact that this existed, people. Have, so this was one of my one of my favorite. Hopefully, let's. I'll be, I'll be grand and call that a legacy. I don't know, but one of my favorite things that I accomplished at, at our university was. Um, so I was in the student government. You were there too. Um, several of us who kind of weren't really satisfied with that Republican evangelical bond being as tight as it was. I have no problem if you want to be a Republican and an evangelical, but like, don't make those exclusive, that you can't be something other than Republican if you're going to be evangelical or, or Christian in general. Because um, there's, a, there's a broad spectrum. Um, so anyway, so yeah, one of the things I was, I was happiest about was you know, while I was in student government, helping to get college Democrats started, and or I think that weren't they? I think that Democrats are actually called Young Democrats, right? They're, uh, they're very inclusive right. in that too. Even yeah, you know, it's not necessarily not necessarily people in college. It can be anybody. Yeah, which is really good. Yeah, I um, think uh, I think like maybe the the T-shirts that we had made were had like the school name. And and like Democrats and then uh, a donkey. I mean, it was yeah. very like I think officially it was it was young Democrats, but I mean it was yeah. very much like we have to make our presence it's known great. on and, campus. And, and I helped like, start the um, the College Libertarians. The yeah, same, the same year. Yeah, um, and it was a, it was an uphill battle just because the administration was dead set against this sort of political dialogue reaching new levels. I mean, so this we went to school in a town that was former manufacturing city that had fallen in hard times. There's 500 of them in the Midwest. I mean, I don't know, mm-hmm. a ton. Mid-sized town, 30,000, 40,000 people that all of a sudden had no prospects. No jobs were coming in. Any jobs they would get would be, you know, like service jobs. You know, Every few years they build a new, a new um, hotel out by the interstate to, to handle the parents that come in for graduation weekend and homecoming for our university. But pretty much it was becoming a college town, but it had so much excess capacity that it was economically depressed. Um, and the mayor was a Democrat. Had, I mean, the city that had always had Democratic mayors because of the strong union worker base from the factory days. So, I mean, it's just a historically Democratic city. Um, and our university wouldn't let the mayor of that city come and, and talk. I mean, there was getting him to be able to come and speak to the students even once was a, was a pretty big pull. Um, and, and this is the city that you live in. You, you know, your yeah. your employees pay taxes here. Some of your employees voted for this guy, right? At least some. You know, I don't know if it's the janitors or somebody that had grown up there. And, you know, maybe not some of the the academics that had come in from other places, but probably some of them too. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, he, this is the, this is the town that you're in. You can't just ignore that. And meanwhile, we lived in like a Disney World resort. I mean, our, our university was. Over the top, nice. I think you know the dorms Absolutely. were pretty good, but then you had things like a student center, which got incredibly better after we left. <laughs> yeah. The new one, I mean, really, it was like <laughs> being at Epcot. Um, <laughs> it was really cool, but really high quality, 
grounds, like the physical presence of the university was great uh, and continued to grow long after we left. I don't know if it's still, probably not the same growth trajectory. I don't think that would have been sustainable, but I'm sure it's bigger than it was even the last time I was there seven or eight years ago. Um, And so we're taking over more and more of this town. We're having more of a presence, but we don't have a dialogue, which is sad. Fundamentally, that to me was problematic. So, you know, getting an evangelical university to accept even this sort of, this isn't like that the Democrats would come in and dominate things or that we would have like, you know, I'm trying to think of an example that wouldn't be totally vulgar. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like something... Something horrible, like I can put an explicit tag yeah. on this. <laughs> uh, but you know, like just to have a dialogue about why people might be Democrats. I mean, we had this. We we did end up with a with a three party debate once. They they let us do that once at, at, at the university. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and it was actually pretty good. I mean, it, honestly, it was just, all I cared about was that people would think. Right? Don't don't ally yourself with any party without thinking it through like read it read read the, the platform read read what's going on there and what they really want to do and what, are you okay with that but there's just so much dogmatic acceptance because it comes back to this thing I was saying most most churches are pretty intellectually lazy right it's more about getting people to feel okay and, and to you know connect with Jesus and connect with the spirit during praise and worship but are we really pushing them to to develop their own biblical worldview, right? I mean, I'll go ahead and say that I think a biblical worldview is a thing, but I'm not sure it's a monolithic thing, right? I think it it has to do with the way we filter the Bible through our own lenses mm-hmm. and filter the world through our, our own individual lenses and kind of come up with this thing that says, well, I think the Bible says these sorts of things and this is how I, I'm seeing the world and here's what I'd like to do about it. Um, for some people, uh, they hear the message that Jesus loves you, and, and that's the most important part. And so when they see somebody not being loved, their reaction is to love. That's a biblical worldview. Possibly so is seeing somebody breaking the law and feeling that the Bible is more about laws. So, I mean, you know, fundamentally, the question would be, how do we adjust the view of the Bible, right? I mean, get to a, a, a more perfect truth there, and I think you'd have a better outcome. And it's probably somewhere between the two extremes, to be honest. I, I don't know. Um, I, if I'm going to err, I've decided that I'm going to err more on that side of love and, and, and grace because I just I don't feel like I've got it in me to, to be the police for everybody and to know what everybody's up to. I don't, I don't care. Um, but other people are going to go another way. I get that. But we don't we don't get people to, to think through how they're accepting the Bible. And I, I think that's a a big failure, quite frankly. At our, you know, at the at the university level, education, but also just every and every Sunday in churches across America, right? They're not going in depth on, you know, well, the Bible says this in the NIV, but if you go back to the Greek, here are like fourteen other ways that this could be read, and some of those are going to be meaningful, and some of those are obviously gibberish, right? But I mean, you know, and then it's put into the grander context of the history of where it was being written, when it was being written, who it was probably intended for, because they, honestly, I don't, it's hard for me to imagine that Paul was thinking about, you know, Midwestern college kids in the early 2000s 
when he sat down and wrote a letter addressed to the Romans, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> or whatever. I mean, that's an example. All figuring out how to be, how to apply the Bible starts with figuring out what the Bible actually means, right? And and I don't think we do that. Not not in a serious or systematic way. Like I think some of those resources are there, but how do you convince people that they need them, right? I mean, I think part of it, churches are marketplaces, right? They really are. Um, people pay for by you know their attendance in, in church and, and probably their offering or their tithe, um, but they pay for what it is that they feel like they want to get. And so if they're not getting that at church A, then they'll go to church B. Um, so how do you package that and market like biblical knowledge and understanding and contextualization as opposed to easy answers every given Sunday, right? Come in for an hour, learn something that may or may not be fundamentally true. That, yeah, that's hard. I, I mean, that's that's not within the scope of anybody's job. That's just a big thing that I think has to get changed before we before we'd be at sort of a higher level of discourse on, on within the evangelical movement and within Christianity in general. Right? Yeah, and it's not that's not just evangelicals that have that problem. No, not at all. And I think uh, I think that's why, like you said, easy answers. Like um, that's why they call this section Christian living. You know, it's yeah. it's like um, it's it's basically like you're your business strategy book, but applied to your spiritual life. Pretty much. If you <laughs> and do these 18 things, then, you know, God's love will pour out of you. Cool. But where, where, where are we getting these? these I mean, because it's an industry, right? I mean, and so, you know, if, if you're an author in that industry, you know, you have to put out a book every certain period, right? You know, if you're the Stephen King of, of Christian fiction, then it's every you know, six and a half days or whatever Stephen King does. <laughs> But he's a he's a fine writer, he's whatever. <laughs> but he puts on he's a lot. Of prolific. I can't he's... I can't keep up with him. No. Um, <laughs> but you know, I mean, and it's product at the end of the day. There's an industry there. It's product. People are moving things and selling things, and so you have to keep new product on the shelves. Maybe that's not great. Like if we're trying to if we're trying to get like capital T truth into a shiny new plastic wrapper every six months, how are we going to get it right? I don't. I don't know. My guess is probably not. Yeah, uh, I think <laughs> you might get lucky, but you're not going to get it, you know, consistently. Yeah, and as much as I think a lot of people have moved away from evangelicalism because of the po- political reasons we've sort of touched on throughout, yeah. I think there's a very large part that also is sort of rejecting that sort of cultural, uh, cultural aspects as well, because they have a very, very heavy tinge of consumerism. There yeah. is the next product i mean you have your own separate type of culture you have your own bookstores your own music your own movies all these different things which are intended to you know they're intended to lift you up and do all these things but i I think there is if we're being very blunt a lot of it is very bland and people know that and so people fall away and they they can see that it's bland i i know for for me for all the years since college, I've never, for up until very recently, I never really wanted to talk or write about spiritual things because I didn't want to be pegged as a Christian writer. Yeah. Like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's like junior varsity, automatically, right? <laughs> I mean, you were talking about the movies, but a lot of the music, too, and I, this came up in one of the other episodes, um, so there's no reason to really dwell on it, but it's true. Like, getting in as a Christian artist gets you an automatic base. Like, somebody's going to be buying your CD somewhere. And then maybe someday, if like, if you just keep plugging away at that, 
you'll get onto a secular label and get wider distribution, but you'll carry some of that Christian base. So, I mean, it's like, it's like, um, you know, minor league baseball. <laughs> yeah. You know, you go play there for a while, but this, so how do you, I mean, at the same time, like not all Christian authors are that way. Not all Christian musicians are, are like that, but that's where 80% of them are. So how do you break that mold and, and write about spiritual things without being considered lower quality? I don't know. It's, it's hard. As, you know, just getting into that market in a way that distinguishes you, it's, it's a big challenge. Yeah. And, I mean, I, it's just, a, it's just an, another example of the sort of either-or that, that you're faced with. Yeah. But then the alternatives are just so, so very fascinating. But they feel, when you're inside an evangelical bubble... They feel off limits. They feel um, forbidden, and it's such a weird thing. Even though, to your point, like you've experienced a, a much wider gamut of the sort of um, Christian experience, but it's uh, self-limiting in a very interesting way. And but it's layered, just like with your with your historical maps. You have the cultural aspect. You have the theological aspect. Right. You have all these different things that put you in this place where you're where you don't feel the freedom which is weird because contemporary evangelicals are very obsessed with the idea of personal freedom yeah um and this is this is a really weird thing um i think it's pretty novel i i I don't see a lot of indication that early evangelical thinkers were were particularly concerned with individual liberty. Um, I mean, if you talk about like the Roe versus Wade thing, it kind of hinges on that because it's the inalienable right to life of, of, a, of a child. So, yeah, but but really it's it's a little bit more ham-fisted than that, right? But in the, in the post... I mean, let's call it the Obama years. I mean, I really think it's... Maybe you saw the beginnings of it in 2004, but, but by 2008 it hit this fever pitch where... Uh, evangelicals were increasingly uh, feeling persecuted, right? There's that language. You have people like Sarah Palin who only know how to, to play on the persecution, right? War on Christmas kind of thoughts, right? Just red cups. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, it's getting to be that time of year again. Let's see what Starbucks does. Um, black, black cups. <laughs> black cups. <laughs> black is a Nordic night. Um, Whatever, it, the the mentality there, I, I don't know where that shift really comes from. I've been thinking about this for a while, and it crept in really quickly. I don't think anybody, I mean, when I was a kid, the political discourse didn't center on individual freedom like this. It centered on patriotic duty. There's always this, you know, like, patriotic, Republican, evangelical, like, link-up, right? So you talked about the, the near-perfect overlap in a Venn diagram between Republicans and evangelicals, but I would say there's a patriotic element to that. Yeah. Right? And we, we talk about evangelical, but fundamentally we're talking about an American experience, right? Like in U.S., maybe Canada, they have got some, there's some overlap there, but, um, you know, this isn't the way evangelicalism gets exported overseas, which tends to be much more sort of a Pentecostal kind of experience. Um there's, so there's some overlap, but I mean, you know, you never hear of like a Wesleyan missionary going and creating like 
in El Salvador, like Salvadorian nationalist evangelical Christians, right? Like that's just not the thing. But here it's a very nationalistic thing um, that you know George Washington and Jesus are are probably not on an equal footing, but but George Washington comes in a close second, right? Um, and then we've we've made sort of the Christianity of the founders off limits. Like you can't even talk to people about the fact that Thomas Jefferson was a hopeful agnostic. Maybe I, yeah. I mean, yeah. He I mean, he certainly seemed in... to. And, and creationism, deism, whatever was deism was sort of the the reigning thought of the day. God created the world. You know, it's the old you know watchmaker, clockmaker mm-hmm. um, metaphor where he just winds all the springs and kind of just lets it be. Um, that's you know that's incompatible with evangelicalism, which says you know you have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that you know miracles still happen, and there's an active God in in and around us. The founders didn't believe any of those things. I mean, not, not generally. Um, it was this sort of cultural Christianity of the day, but they were fundamentally dangerous thinkers, and probably more of them than we like to think about were were at least deeply questioning their faith if not abandoning it altogether aside from just the cultural pressure of the time which was you had to show up on Sunday um, prior to um, prior to American independence it was actually illegal in some jurisdictions to not be participating in your church so you know of course you went right like who's going to break that silly law in either given hour although yeah. as, <laughs> that harkens back to our chapel discussion where I'm like well we did that all the time so <laughs> on the same- Probably there were some people who, who still found a way to pay for it and just move on with their life. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but so now, like, 21st century evangelical Republican ideology is pseudo-libertarian, right? Um, it's not really libertarian because, you know, I get individual freedom as long as it's, like, under God. And it's, you know, it has to be sort of framed as this Christian liberty. But if somebody else is practicing their liberty and it involves, you know, like, being gay, for example, then no, they really shouldn't have that freedom. We should make a law about that, like, or at least allow the states to make laws because federal laws are obviously bad. But they've, it's anarchy at, at a certain point because you you have this like Tea Party movement, with which which is strongly identified with the evangelical movement um, that wants to do away with the federal government in the U.S. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing because our structure fundamentally is to have the to have the states, yes, and they have authority, but we also have the federal government, and it has authority. And so how do you balance that? You can't just get rid of one leg or one pillar of this thing and expect the, the structure to, to stay upright. Um, and they don't replace it with anything. That's the thing. So they're, I wouldn't even call them honest libertarians, um, not in the way that like the Libertarian Party sort of frames it. They value personal liberty probably on an equal footing, but there's still this sort of like, judgment inherent in evangelical libertarianism, if that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be liberty to do the right thing under, you know, sort of God's law, as opposed to liberty to do whatever and the consequences may be what they are. So it's it's theocracy, kind of. I mean, anybody who's in the right mindset can do what they want, but if you're not, then sorry, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's why you see this rash of laws that allow people to exercise quote-unquote religious freedom but what that really means is freedom to exclude people freedom to not serve people because of what they believe who they are 
whatever, whatever, whatever reason you decide. And if you create some sort of religious link to that, the other thing that that does, and tangentially, um, you know, I'm from Indiana, so was watching closely the the debate around the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or whatever it was called in Indiana. And the the other thing that does is it sets the stage for saying that these beliefs are inherent to Christianity, right? That, you know, um, if Christianity is the reason I'm rejecting gay people, then it's inherent that Christianity rejects gay people. And I think that's really, really dangerous because it, it damages the faith. It damages the way people view Christians in general. Like, it's one thing if you want to view that, that guy as a bigot, but if you are going to start painting more than a billion people around the world as, as bigots, that's not helpful. Some of them are, right? I mean, obviously, but when you put it into law like that, that Christianity allows for the discrimination against gays, then that means Christianity is anti-gay, inherently. I think, right? I mean, am I wrong about that? No, I think, I mean, I think that's a very simple, very straightforward sort of link you can make. Yeah. You and it is absolutely damaging to the common perception of Christianity, um, because Christianity in itself, I think, is an inherently malleable. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons why different groups throughout history have added additional things, and I know I'm getting into dangerous territory with that sort of statement. Um, and you know every single generation tries to get back to the fundamentals of oh, yeah. like there's always each denomination that's that splits or like each parachurch group or whatever they're trying to get back to the original teachings of yeah. Jesus um, and that and you can do that like you can do that within the context of uh, denominational history or within the context of, of Catholicism um, but it's that malleability that I think is one of Christianity's greatest strength. It's it's really just a handful of tenets, and you know Jesus was like love God, love your neighbors, and then Jesus is supposed to be our model of what God is like. Um, but then whenever you have a strong cult- cultural representation of uh, of Christianity in a country, and, you, and they are extremely politically powerful. And there's a big media presence that's covering it and disseminating that information. Then it is very damaging to Christianity because it, and because that is what rises to the surface of common attention, yeah. and that is what Christianity becomes known for, and that is terrible. Right. I mean, <laughs> it's tragic yeah. because there's so much depth and there's so much so much knowledge to draw on and experience to draw on. Um, that whenever you see that, it is just heartbreaking if you identify otherwise. I mean, inevitably, right, not just related to Christianity, but negative news tends to hold more impact or have more of an impact. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, you you have a story like that and it goes, it weighs more than, you know, like last week uh, Mother Teresa was was canonized. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there were a few nice stories about, but I mean, where was like the real push to remember this fantastically inspirational woman? Probably not a very personable person, honestly. I mean, nobody wants to be Mother Teresa's friend. She apparently was kind of mean, but a person who loved and a person who embodied uh, at least some of Christ's teachings in a way that very few other people in history have been able to do. That's the story I'd like to 
tell about Christianity, right? That's what I'd like to export and make people think that we're somehow at least in the shadow of her, right? Um, rather than a baker who doesn't want to make a gay wedding cake. That's such an inconsequential... It's not inconsequential to like the family that's being rejected. I don't want to minimize their their struggle, right? But it is. It's a wedding cake, right? Compared to saving people's lives and, and giving people dignity. Maybe that's the fundamental thing between the two, isn't it? It's dignity. And, and whether or not we use Christ's love to empower people and give them dignity or we withhold it, right? And that withholding behavior is a little abusive. Um, so maybe that's the contrast that we, between those two types of, of Christianities. Yeah. Um, but no, go back to the to this sort of libertarian stream of thought. It's, I don't know how long that'll last in Christianity, to be really honest with you. I think it's... I think it's powerful in the evangelical movement right now. Um, but I also think that it's reactionary to a political climate that's a little more hostile to evangelicals. Um, it's certainly to that sort of Midwestern, the dominant evangelical force that we described earlier, right? So white, Midwestern, like middle class. The Barack Obama presidency was inevitably earth-shattering because every other president that we've ever had has looked more or less like us maybe from a wealthier family but at least tries to put on some sort of blue collar route to to show that he's with the workers but yeah i mean um, bush is from went to yale and yeah. he's like from old money and yeah. but he's got that that texan accent but, but he connects he really well with yeah, people he, i mean he's a horrible public speaker but one-on-one he's he connects really well with people mm-hmm. and makes them feel like he's one of them um his lack of polish was an asset um, in a different way that Trump's lack of polish is being used as an asset. I mean, they're fundamentally different. But mm-hmm. um, but anyway, so I think that it was because we don't like the rules anymore. We don't like who's in charge of the game. Now, personal liberty became important. And so, like, if tomorrow an evangelical, like, standard bearer were to suddenly be president, let's say Ted Cruz, right, who without Trump probably would be... Um, the Republican candidate, and we'd probably be neck and neck with Hillary, I think. Um, so, you know, let's give this guy, let's give the guy a, a chance in a, in a thought experiment. Would Republicans abandon that libertarian thing and go back to... But he kind of embodies it, too. He uses it, but at the end of the day, like, now that our guy's in the White House, maybe the federal government's not so bad, right? So I think that it's a little reactionary, but I do think it's dangerous, and if it persists too long, it could be really, it could have really negative consequences because it, it's toxic, fundamentally, um, if you have your, your most patriotic group, right? I mean, the, the closest thing that we've got to, to, like, proper nationalists, aside from fringe groups, but within mainstream American culture, evangelicals are the flag bearers for the American flag, right? I mean, they're, they're the ones that, you know, want to say the Pledge of Allegiance in the first place, and especially want to emphasize the phrase, it's one, one nation under God. Um, so, you know, if we remove them from and, and actually get them to turn against the federal government. I think that's really toxic. I don't know where that could go. Um, I'm nervous about where it could go. Quite frankly, I don't see a lot of positives coming out of that. So I hope that that's something that shifts again in short order. I don't know what would... I mean, in, in this election cycle, it won't be because of who's in the White House that the evangelicals will come back to to loving the federal government um, or even tolerating the federal government. But right now, there's this 
this anti-federal mentality, even anti-state at a certain level. It's all anti-government, um, but especially the federal government. It can, it's only cast as something that comes in and messes with your faith. And that's a really dangerous narrative to set. Um, I, I don't know. Hmm. So how are you? Um, how are you kind of personally navigating these things? I think, um, I you know, it's definitely very fascinating. This contemporary history we have with political thought being married to religious thought. I don't, outside of like divine right thinking. Yeah, way back, you yeah. know, it wasn't necessarily. Um, well, those things were sort of assumed. the The natural order of society was kind of assumed for a very long time. Um, but then we have historic historical examples of like the progressive movements um, where there were Christians who were abolitionists and women's suffrage. And we had a number of different ways in which people uh, lived out their faith within the political realm. Um, but uh, bringing it down to a more individual level, how are you um, trying to navigate these things both politically and philosophically or religiously, however you want to frame these things, how are, where are you now? What are you sort of, what are you sort sure. of feeling? Um, well, yeah. So my my separation from from the evangelical movement probably also separated me from the Repu- Republican Party. Um, at least made me take a good step back. And um, while while I was a member of the Libertarian Party for a while, um, basically I've just I'm not really a partisan at heart because I, I, I don't think that's... To me, it's, the, it's an easy labeling exercise, but it's not usually indicative of, of firm truths, right? That all Democrats are bad or all Republicans are, are good or, or, or vice versa. Um, and so, you know, this, this current climate is particularly challenging. Um, I think one thing that has been, has been difficult is seeing the way that because I still have most of my family are still sort of in that evangelical bubble, um, and a lot of my a lot of my friends from high school, and a lot of you know good people, are still in that. I've probably, I think I, for a while I tried to just keep quiet about it and just not step on anybody's toes. But fundamentally, I think there's some real problems, and so I'd like to propose solutions to them rather than ignore them. Um, and so I, I have kind of embraced the dialogue a little more. Um, I'm not sure that I, you know, I, you can't, you can't, you can present the facts, but you can't really make people accept them or, or take those on. So that's, that's a big challenge, um, in terms of just keeping a, a healthy dialogue with even family members, right? You're probably in the same boat. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, you Thanksgiving's going to be fun. Um, <laughs> but whatever. Um, you, you know, it's not like you stop loving those people. You just don't see eye to eye. And the important thing is to remember, you know, and, and for us, for everybody, to, to remember to, to act with grace, right? I mean, so that's that's step one, is just put it into, into the context a little bit that they're still, they're still family. Um, and that fundamentally nothing's going to happen in the next four years, right? Like, the great thing about America is that the football stays on the 50-yard line. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think the founders, I, I don't tend to, to, to beatify them and, and think that they were these superhumans who gave us you know, divine knowledge, but the one thing they did really well was they figured out a way to 
make a government that could get important things done when both parties agree that it's important. But the rest of the time, like it's hard to go left or hard to go right in meaningful ways. Like, really, I mean, we don't we don't have this sort of massive shifts that in a lot of the developing countries where I've worked, you see you know, a new president comes in from the other party and is clean, you know, clean cleans house in all the ministries. Everything has to get rebuilt, and it's totally new. It doesn't really happen here. Um, so, from you know, the political exercise in America, things will stay more or less where they are. Right? So that's one thing to just bear in mind is how important is it really? Um, it's important because I mean if we if we let it go unchecked then then there's problems but it's not it's not worth sacrificing you know like family relationships over right mm-hmm. um, but you know in terms of just for me in general you know I, I'm a, I, I vote uh, and I try to vote my conscience um, but you know it, it requires doing the digging. Like you got to spend a Saturday going through who's going to be on your ballot, figuring out what they mean. Maybe even more than a Saturday, right? Try to track it for longer than that. But you've got to sit down and do it. You, otherwise, you just go in there and vote randomly, I guess, but, or vote straight ticket. Which is, to me, that's that's not acceptable, right? For me, that's never been something I could feel fine doing because there might be that you might think everybody in your party is a saint, but what if there's that one guy who's just like it? horrible horrible human being <laughs> and the other person's not so bad and you know if like for city council or something like this, does it matter like vote for the, the person who's actually A not despicable and B can get some things that you care about done I guess I, I don't know this year in particular like we said earlier 2016 is hard right <laughs> <laughs> I don't know um, this is yeah this is everybody's just throwing their hands up pretty much <laughs> This this will be a fun one. Um, I don't know. I mean, I so I live in Washington D.C. My my vote for president fundamentally doesn't count, right? Hillary's going to win Washington D.C. So I could I could vote for Mickey Mouse and <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be the only one, but you know, what I mean? like, yeah, yeah, she's still going to get eighty percent or something there. The Democrats could run like Mr. Ed, and you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there's no love for Trump in the Beltway. No, actually, <laughs> yeah. Um, every now and again, you find, you find somebody, but even among like, because he represents, or at least his rhetoric, right? I'll caveat that his rhetoric represents a threat to the natural established order in D.C., right? Which is to keep the football in the fifty-yard line. We don't want to go too far either way because we like things more or less where they are. Because all the contractors and you know, think tanks and everything get pretty wealthy. Um, Politicians keep revolving between lobbyists and, and, and congressional seats and maybe a, a FCC or, or Department of Commerce position for a couple of years. I mean, they're just constantly circulating. I don't know if that's good or bad. I think there's some pluses and minuses to that. You end up with congressmen who, who more or less know what's happening in industry and vice versa. That's good. But are they doing like, is it a little bit collus- collusion? Is it a little bit of uh, sort of nepotism and, and, and is there room for corruption absolutely so it's good and bad um, but I'm not sure I'm ready to, just, to destroy all of that and rebuild it in the Trump fashion anyways I mean we could have a, a healthy dialogue on how we could make America better but I don't think it starts with him um, I, don't, I don't think it starts with the sort of violent rhetoric the rhetoric that he represents not just him I mean Ted Cruz is also a little bit that way but 
he knows, I think he knows that limit, which is he also needs to stay in government because he's not going to get a job outside. Like, yeah. he's, he's got to stay. Like, U.S. <laughs> Senate's about as good as he's going to get. So, you know, maybe president if he, if he, if he gets lucky in four years. But, um, you know, that's, he's not going to blow up the whole house. He might say he'll get rid of the Department of Education on day one, but. Yeah. I mean, Obama said he was going to close Guantanamo on day one, right? So, yeah. here we are eight years later. Yeah, inertia is a powerful factor it in is. government. So it is, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? As, so one thing that I would caveat is I do spend a lot of time working around the U.S. government now, but before you know, with other governments, and, and still with other governments as well. But um, and you, there's so much that we don't get taught about how government fundamentally works. Like at the, at, you, know, you know how a bill becomes a law. We've all seen that um, schoolhouse rocks. <laughs> but, but like in the day to day, how does the FCC determine what um, what rules will apply to you know net neutrality, for example? I mean, that's really it impacts people's lives, but most people don't even understand the definition of net neutrality, let alone like you know yeah. how to, how to how to impact it. Yeah, right. It's not something you write your congressman about. The congress doesn't do anything. Right. Like that. So yeah, I mean, you know, which which FCC commissioner? Are you going to contact personally? Like, how do you? How would you even start that process? Yeah, high school civics class doesn't get get. Well, first off, it doesn't get taught anymore. Um, but it never taught us how to do things like that, right? Yeah. And so, that's one thing I would say that. Again, it comes down to this sort of not being intellectually lazy. If we're gonna if we're gonna use the church as a political platform, and evangelicals obviously are doing that, right? I don't think there's any. They're not standing in the pulpit and saying vote Republican, but the culture has conspired to create a, an atmosphere where voting Republican is the expected norm. Um, if you're going to do that, at least educate people on how to get involved in like properly organized things. Otherwise, you end up with just frustrated electorate, which is what we have now. People who don't feel like the people they're sending to Congress are getting things done when you, they weren't taught how to, you know, like, this is the big problem with the Tea Party um, group that came in in, in 2000, it was 2010, right? Yeah, yeah, um, during that congressional they, they election. They came in, they didn't know how to govern, because they never, none, they were all outsiders, right? So it was like, you know, if you have an aircraft carrier, some really big, complex piece of machinery that requires thousands and thousands of people to operate, let alone operate efficiently, and you take the crew out, maybe you've left the manual, but you send a new crew, and there's no institutional knowledge, there's no, you know, how to get things done. What's going to happen? Like, the thing's just going to stay put, best case scenario, run adrift, or run aground, like, on a coral reef someplace, worst case scenario. That's kind of what happened with that 2010 Tea Party group. They just, they didn't know how to govern, and so they were inevitably going to fail. And this, the, the system kind of came back a little bit, but now it's under threat again by, like, the Tea Party 2.0. It's not even about, it's just destructive. It, there's no, there's no mention of, you know, fixing And even the, the sort of the far left, right? The Bernie campaign was also very had some pretty destructive rhetoric. And I, personally, I find a, Trump and Bernie to be kind of equally uh, frightening. If they got, if they were able to do what they say they're going to do on the campaign trail, we all know that's like half truth at best. Um, you say things to get votes, and then you, but you really know what you would need to do. We hope you would know. Um, they both were a little bit destructive and threatened to to put the country into some some 
really, really difficult shifts. And a country this big doesn't shift quickly well, right? You're going to throw things around. and It'd be like moving that aircraft carrier and trying to turn it on a dime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're going to throw things off the deck. It's, it's just going to be bad. <laughs> um, and it's not going to work in anyways. Like, it's, you're going to skitter out of control. Yeah. Those airplanes so, are expensive, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't want... This sounds like patronizingly conservative or something, but... And not conservative Republican, just conservative in, in, in general. Uh, but slow shifts have to be the way to get things done, I think, for, for the big things. I mean, other things... You know, gay marriage, that was a like a, a one-court decision deal. Good, right? And that's fine, because obviously the country hasn't pulled apart. But if you're going to, like, reshape the economy, right, either by removing 11 million undocumented workers, which are the backbone of the U.S. economy, or by, you know, shaping the way that wealth is distri- distributed rapidly, like, those are destructive forces, right? And so doing those quickly is just a fundamentally flawed concept, I think. But, yeah. Yeah. It's been an interesting <laughs> year. It's been such yeah. an interesting year because it, it has, people have been radicalized. Um, so I'm, I, I think the interesting so thing would be what the fallout is. How long do people, I mean, on, on, on one hand, the Bernie supporters too, they were left feeling disenfranchised by the Democratic Party. Um, but the Republicans probably aren't going to win the election. I mean, I think, the general trend is that Hillary is going to win, and, and that makes sense. Um, but if if they don't, are they going to feel disenfranchised by sort of the national electorate? And how long is that bitterness going to last? And what is that what is that going to look like in four years when you have sort of a chance for revenge? And does the pendulum start swinging more aggressively farther to each side, or do we start putting this? slowing it down to keep it near the middle I don't know that's that's it's maybe yeah. frightening actually <laughs> yeah I think uh, I think that's uh, really uh, a great a great sort of theme to end on which is it's okay to take your time it's okay to slow down yeah. <laughs> and I mean it's uh, it's there there are serious things at stake but um, but at the same time, doing something rash is not necessarily the right answer. Um, and yeah, so, well, Ryan, I've really enjoyed our, I really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, it's, you know, covered a lot of different grounds. I feel like we layered things just like we've talked about, (laughs) um, in a, in a couple of different ways. There's, there's a lot to unpack. There's so much, um, so much, uh, interesting stuff here. Uh, and I really want to thank you for, for meeting up and, and recording this with me. It's been a lot of fun. I'm glad that you're having this conversation. I mean, a lot of us have moved out of the evangelical sort of space, and we all have our own individual reasons, but being able to kind of look through the themes and see what maybe is the, the stronger narrative between all of us, I think is going to be what's already been enlightening. Um, and I think, I, I hope that it's helpful to a lot of other people. Yes, yeah, We're me too. That's, yeah, that, that's definitely a theme is that really you might feel crazy, but you're not. You're not alone in, uh, in having, um, having these thoughts and having these concerns. So thank you for sharing, sharing yours. I really appreciate it. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers. 
someone who cares Your own personal Jesus Someone to hear your prayers Someone who's there Feeling unknown and you're all alone Flesh and bones by the telephone Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer Take second best, put me to the test Things on your chest, you need to confess I will deliver, you know I'm a forgiver Reach out and touch faith Reach out and touch faith